Well, amen. Good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. We're excited to be here. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Billy. Uh, I get the privilege to serve as one of the pastors here, and that's a huge privilege for me. Uh, we got some exciting stuff going on at the church. Last Sunday was a big Sunday for us. If you were here, uh, you experienced it. Man, what, a, what an incredible blessing, uh, not only for the baptisms that we were able to celebrate together, uh, but also breaking ground on our new permanent facility over at the old hospital. Uh, what an incredible day. Thank you for coming uh, to that. We also had our commitment Sunday for immeasurably more, uh, and God really did an incredible work uh, with us, and I want to celebrate a couple things. One, uh, last week we had the biggest one-time offering we've ever had. On one day, you guys uh, gave $120,000 toward immeasurably more, so that's awesome. And then we also had 113 families or giving units uh, commit to give to immeasurably more over the next three years, and uh, you guys have heard about that. It is going to help us do, accomplish some really cool over and beyond objectives uh, to reach more people with the gospel. And so we had 113 families make commitments to that. Uh, for $1.2 million over the next three years. And so that's something else that's just absolutely incredible. And so the thing that I'm probably the most proud about in all of that is uh, that's about 73% of, our, of uh, the adult attendance in the room. And so again, uh, my heart in this is not necessarily the numbers. My heart uh, is the people. And I know if, if your heart uh, is committed to helping reach more people and sacrificing of yourself to do that, uh, then your heart's in a good place with God, and so we celebrate that today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 is where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to jump back into our series called Be the Church, where we've been reading and kind of working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. And so when you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you kind of have reached the climax of the book of 2 Corinthians. And so if you've been here uh, throughout this year, you, you've studied with us along. Uh, but Paul has really been uh, in an interesting uh, relationship with this Corinthian church. And so there was a lot of stuff going on with the Corinthians. And Paul had been there and, and had some bad experiences there, some good experiences there. And the book of 2 Corinthians was kind of his final letter uh, to really try to get them going back in the right direction. And so uh, no book in the Bible helps us uh, feel and hear and see the heart of Paul more than 2 Corinthians. And so I'm excited uh, to, to study this passage together this morning. So if you got your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1, and uh, we'll work our way through it. So it says this, <clears throat> I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. So again, remember our context. Paul has been, uh, in the past couple chapters, combating these super apostles or false teachers uh, that kind of slipped into Corinth behind him. And these guys were uh, really attacking Paul and who he was, and they were trying to lead the Corinthian church astray, and they were telling people that Paul was not a man of God, he was not a good speaker. If he was a man of God, he'd be a good speaker with eloquent words. He doesn't have any worldly credentials. He's kind of not an impressive person to look at, so there's no way he's from God. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of worldly following, so because of that, we know he's not from God. And Paul's 
basically trying to convince the Corinthians of the opposite. Hey, if you're following the Lord in this world, you're probably not gonna have a huge worldly following because the world and God don't want the same things, if that makes sense. And so in the past two chapters, Paul has really kind of been defending himself, but also uh, flexing on these super apostles in, in some ways, if you know that, that language, if you don't ask somebody younger than you. Um, and so he's been talking about suffering and persecution and a lot of the things that he has gone through uh, as a Christian. And now he's saying, not only have I been through this, and does this confirm that I'm a follower of God and that I'm an apostle, but also I'm gonna tell you about visions and revelations next. And so he's gonna open up to us about an incredible experience that he has had uh, with God. And he doesn't boast in these things, uh, or he doesn't talk about these things to boast in himself. He's just proving the point that godly people don't boast in themselves even if they have a good reason to boast in themselves. Their boast is in God because God has done everything and given them everything, right? And so uh, you don't follow Jesus and make much of yourself. You follow Jesus and make much of Christ. And so if you find somebody that's trying to make much of themselves, uh, boasting in themselves, most likely they're not following the Lord or at least not healthy in that where they're at. And so listen to what Paul says, verse two. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. I know he switches gears and kind of sounds like he's talking about somebody else, but he's talking about himself, and he'll reveal that in a second. He says, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows was caught up to paradise. Now, paradise should ring a bell. The thief on the cross that was with Jesus, Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise, which is the presence of God. So we know the third heaven in paradise is meaning uh, the presence of God. So uh, Paul says he was caught up to paradise, and listen, and he heard inexpressible things. So whatever he experienced there and whatever he heard there was inexpressible. Now, that could be for a number of reasons. Maybe it was too great for us in the world to recognize and know. Uh, but then he goes on to say, things that no one is permitted to tell. Almost like when he experienced it, God said, hey, you don't need to talk about these things because folks ain't ready for it. And so you can do what you want to with that. Uh, it may be uh, that if we knew as much as Paul knew about heaven, we would all be like, all right, I'm ready to die and go to heaven now. But I don't know what it is. I'm not gonna uh, speculate. But anyway, Here's what I will say. The Bible talks about three heavens, right? And so we know this, most commentators agree on this, that there's a first heaven, which is kind of the atmosphere that we live in right now, basically the earth, the, the sky, that kind of thing. Second heaven uh, would be outer space, the stars, galaxies, you know, that kind of uh, thing. And then the third heaven would be the presence of God. He's not talking about like tears of heaven, like Billy's gonna be on the first level and uh, Mr. Wade's gonna be on the third because he's better. But, you know, that's not what he's talking about. Uh, he's talking about the third heaven being the presence of God. I've heard it said this way, and I think I like it. The first heaven we see by day, the second heaven we see by night, and the third heaven we see by faith. And so that's a good way to think about uh, that. And then Paul says it was 14 years ago. So when he had this experience and was caught up to the third heaven, he was a young believer, 
right? And so it had nothing to do with his maturity, so we don't need to be like, oh, well, once I reach maturity, God will give me an experience to the third heaven. No, it has nothing to do with that. God was doing something in Paul's life personally where he felt the need to take him to uh, the third heaven, and it was when he was a young believer. And Paul goes on to say, I'm not sure what happened. I don't know if I was out of the body or if I was in the body. All I know is I was in the presence of God, and what I saw was inexpressible and uh, not permitted for me to talk about. And so uh, there's kind of some, you know, uh, it, it isn't confusing, but it's, it, it's very vague. It doesn't really give us a whole lot uh, of what's going on. And notice Paul doesn't spend much time there. You know, if that was one of us and, uh, you know, Craig came, walked up to me and said, hey, God took me to heaven yesterday, we would talk for hours about that, right? I mean, I would want to talk about, but Paul, for some reason, doesn't spend much uh, time there talking about this experience. And most of us in this room, I, we're intrigued right now, and we want to hear a whole sermon on the third heaven. Amen? I mean, we do. It just is an intriguing uh, thought, but Paul does not do that. And I want you to listen to why he doesn't, because Paul's point is not the heavenly experience. He's got something else that God is, is teaching him, and he wants us to know. Verse 5, he says, I will boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me. I want you to underline that. He doesn't boast about things that God has done personally in his life because he doesn't want people to think more of him than is warranted by what I do or say. Verse 7. Or because of these surpassingly uh, great revelations. Now listen to where he goes with it. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, Paul goes on to tell us about being given a thorn in the flesh. Now, nobody in here could have saw him going from a heavenly vision to a thorn in the flesh. Like He goes from one of the most amazing experiences a person could ever have to now I want to talk about my weaknesses. What is he doing? Well, a lot of people have a lot of questions about uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh. So, you know, is it uh, what is it? Is it physical pain? Was it an emotional experience? Was it a spiritual pain? Did it have something to do with relationships? And, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly uh, what his thorn in the flesh was. So we know it doesn't want us to know. So it's not that important that we know what the thorn in the flesh is. What's important is the point that he's trying to make. And he does give us some details about the thorn. So let's listen to those. He says, the thorn was given to him by God. That's a big deal. Meaning God was sovereign over it. He was in control of it. He gave it, and it had a purpose. God gave him a thorn in the flesh with a purpose, and that purpose was to keep Paul from becoming conceited. Secondly, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. So we know a couple things. A thorn, when you think thorn, the word for thorn there actually means a tent stake. So don't think like, man, I was roaming through the woods and a little thorn got caught in my leg, boom, plucked it out, not that big of a deal. Think like stake through your leg or in your flesh that hurt. So we know it caused Paul a lot of pain and it had something to do with his flesh. The worldly side of him 
that wanted to live for himself and not for God. It was an attack or pain that was caused uh, by that. And so it was very painful. And then he says, he calls it a messenger of Satan, which makes you think that it's these false teachers that keep slipping in behind him. It would make sense that he's talking about these super apostles that have come in and tried to destroy the work that he was doing uh, in Corinth. The problem is, is he calls it a messenger of Satan, which makes you think it's a person, but then he calls it an it after that. He says, I've pleaded that God would take it, so it makes you think it's not a person. So again, we don't know if it was that or not, but he says, I pleaded with God to take it away from me three times. So we know this was not a pain that one, God was gonna take away from him, but two, we know that he did it three times, and so it was an ongoing issue that kept coming up in Paul's life. So that's what we know about the thorn, and I wanna say um, this, that I believe it's so vague yet so specific because I think Paul wants us to understand the principle of a thorn in our flesh because I think we also will have thorn in our flesh from time to time, and Paul wants us to understand exactly what God is doing in this situation. So notice what the Lord told Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So, so what God showed Paul, and this is Paul's whole point in the whole passage, from heaven all the way down to his main point, is that God allows things and even sends thorns into our lives to reveal our weakness so that we can experience God's power and God's grace in ways that we wouldn't have if we didn't have the thorn. That makes sense? And so he's, he's revealing something in Paul, and he wants to reveal Paul's weakness, hinder him from becoming prideful and conceited so that he can experience the grace and power of God in a way that he wouldn't if he wasn't there. Because it's in our weakness that he says God's power is made perfect, made perfect. What does that mean? It means that God's power completes his work in us and through us. Uh, this is the idea of sanctification. If you've been through heart and soul, you know at our church, we talk a lot about how salvation is a three-part process. When you first get saved and you give your life to Christ, in an instant, you go from death to life spiritually, and you go from an enemy of God to now the righteousness of God has been given to you based off of what Christ has done. And you're accepted by God, you're loved by God, and you have access uh, to God, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done. That's called justification. God sees you just as if you've never sinned before. But then everybody that's justified and truly repents and gives their life to Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit. And God gives us the Holy Spirit, which is the power of God, for a specific purpose, and that purpose is to grow us and make us more like Jesus. So that when we become a Christian, that our life will now progressively become more and more like Christ as we begin to walk uh, by the Holy Spirit. This is the idea of sanctification, that God is producing and it's a process of us becoming more and more like Jesus. And that truth that God uses our weakness to display his power in us, to make us more like himself, is a truth that will change your life. 
Because we live in a world that worships strength and ability and everybody's got to have it all together and don't tell anybody if you don't have it all together. But truthfully, in the Christian life, it's upside down. When we experience and God shows us our weakness, it leads us to depend on him, which leads to him doing an incredible work in our life. It will radically change your perspective. Now listen to what Paul says because of this. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly or joyfully about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. I want you to underline rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul says, after everything that I've been through in my life, this is what I've learned. I've learned to boast not in my strengths, but boast gladly and joyfully in my weaknesses, and I've learned to delight in them. I've learned to delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecution and difficulty because when I do, it's there that I find the power of God. And not just do I find the power and grace of God, he goes so far as to say, in those moments when I feel at my weakest, Christ's power rests on me. That word for rest on me is the same word the Bible uses for tabernacle. And if you know anything about the Bible, the tabernacle is a big deal. I'm not talking about Tabernacle Baptist Church. I'm talking about tabernacle in the Bible. Tabernacle meaning that's where the presence of God was housed in the Old Testament. And then we see Jesus come on the scene in John 1, and what does he say? The word became flesh and dwelt, same word, tabernacled, among us. And so the power of God rested upon Christ and he came and dwelt with us. And so now Paul's saying when we're at our weakest and we understand how weak we are in our flesh, it's then that the powerful presence of God rests upon our life. It's an incredible principle that we all need to understand because what you will begin to do is you will begin to think a lot less of pride and trying to stand on your own two feet and make much of yourself and begin to say, no, growth in the Christian life is actually about discovering just how weak I am. Because the farther I, and the more I follow Jesus, the more weakness I see that I have, but in that weakness, God meets me there and he begins to work in my life. It's an incredible, incredible reality. And he goes on to say uh, this. Actually, let me finish up the rest of that point. This is an important truth for each of us to grasp because the Christian life, sanctification, again, is not about figuring out how strong you are. It's the opposite. The closer we walk with Christ, the more aware we are of just how weak we actually are. And listen, God wants it this way because when we are weak, we are humble and dependent. And when we are humble and dependent on him, that's when God does his greatest work in our lives and then when we, and that's when we're the most useful for him. So write this down. Our weakness doesn't disqualify us in the Christian life. It actually opens us up to God's power. Hear me again. Our weakness doesn't disqualify us in the Christian life. It actually opens the door or opens us up to God's power, meaning our weakness is not an obstacle, it's actually a gateway to God and his usefulness and us being useful for him. 
So when you find yourself in these places, and whatever it takes to get you there, whatever kind of thorn it is, of Lord, help me, God, I need you, God, I can't do this on my own, places of life, I want you to remember the words of God. The same word he gave Paul. He doesn't take his thorn away. He reveals to him the truth and the reality that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then he switches gears in verse 11, and he goes on to say this. He says, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs and wonders and miracles. How were you inferior to other churches except that I was never a burden to you? For me, this is wrong. forgive me this wrong. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time and I will not be a burden to you. Listen to this. Because what I want is not your possessions. Remember, he was taking up an offering and they, I guess, were thinking he just wanted their money. He says, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything that I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you, yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men that I sent to you? I urged Titus, Titus was the guy that Paul had sent to Corinth in his, on his place because he couldn't go. He said, I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him and Titus didn't exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same Holy Spirit? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. And so again, you just see Paul trying to help them understand that everything he's doing is, is for their good. And you have to remember the history here, and I know it's been a while since we talked about it, between Paul and the Corinthians. So this would have been Paul's, again, third visit to them. The first visit was when he planted the church in Acts chapter 18. And uh, he uh, was there. He was working. Nobody was really responding. God came to him in a dream and basically said, hey, I need you to stay here because I have many people uh, that are going to become Christians here. And so he stays. The church gets planted. A lot of people get saved. And then he kind of leaves. And the church is at a pretty good place. Well, he goes to Ephesus across the sea and he spends some time in Ephesus. Well, he gets word in Ephesus that basically all hell is breaking loose in the church in Corinth. There's sin in the church. People are fighting each other. These false teachers have come in behind him and are leading people astray. And basically, the church is just in a terrible spot. And so Paul picks up from Ephesus, goes back to uh, Corinth, and he starts addressing some of the issues. And he starts trying to deal with the sin, lead the people back where they want to go, and guess how they responded? This was called the painful visit. So if that gives you any hint, they didn't respond very well. They didn't want to hear from Paul. They didn't want to turn from their sin. They wanted to continue doing. And as Paul stood up and pleaded with them to come back to God, nobody stood up for Paul. And so Paul left, and he caused that 
the painful visit. And that really hurt him because he saw the Corinthians as his spiritual uh, children. And he saw it as kind of them leaving him out to dry in some ways. But he doesn't give up on them. He just kind of moves, goes back to Ephesus and uh, sends Titus back to care for him. And now he's coming back for this third visit. And his motivation is clear. He doesn't want to be a burden to them. He's not coming to burden them. He's not coming to trick them. He's not after their money. What he wants is them. He wants a relationship with them. He wants their relationship with God to be right, and he wants their relationship with one another uh, to be right. Paul loves them like a father. He desires good for them. He wants so badly for their relationship with God to be healthy. It literally kept him up at night. It was all he could think about in the book of Acts was what is going on in Corinth, and can we get these people back where they need to be uh, with the Lord? And so he has a great fear, and he's about to tell us about that in verse 20. He's getting ready to go to him to see him for the third time. He's sending this letter ahead of him, and this is what he says, verse 20. For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and they have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. And so Paul is scared and fearful that when he gets there, he's gonna find the Corinthians in the same place that he found them when he went for the second visit, the same place where their hearts are are, are away from God and they're living in sin, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip. Those are just uh, relational sins. You don't get along with people when they're doing uh, those things. When those slip into the church, it really destroys the church uh, very quickly. They've gotten arrogant. And so they don't listen to anybody or anybody that's trying to help them. They're filled with sexual sin and debauchery. And these sins grieve Paul. And not only do they grieve Paul, more importantly, they grieve God. Because unrepentant sin in the church literally breaks the heart of God. And unrepentant sin in our lives breaks the heart of God. And you have to think about it this way. Like when you become a Christian you are acknowledging the fact that when Christ came and died on the cross, that it was your sin that killed him. And that's a very personal thing, right? That's why the gospel is something that we experience as much as it's something that we know, right? It has to be more than knowledge. It has to go into our hearts, and we have to come to grips with the fact that it was our sin that killed Jesus. And so now, as a Christian, when we begin to continue to walk in the same sin that crucified Christ, essentially what we're doing is we're re-crucifying Jesus and we're doing it knowingly and essentially the Bible says we're trampling on the grace of God. And it breaks the heart of God because it's basically God said, Billy, I have all these good things for you, abundant life, I've freed you from the penalty of sin, freed you from the power of sin, and yet you are still obsessed with yourself and you want to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And you can see a father heart of God just breaking as they see uh, their children uh, doing things that are going to lead to death and to destruction. 
and it hinders, when sin is in the church, it hinders the church from growing. It hinders the church from displaying Christ, and it tramples on the grace of God. And so I want you to write this down. It is a big deal to not deal with sin in my life. It is a really big deal when I knowingly know about sin. God has convicted me. God has shown me sin in my life through God's word, through the preaching of the word, through other Christians, and for me not to deal uh, with that sin. Now listen, God doesn't expect the church to be sinless. That make sense? We all have sin. The Bible says very clearly in 1 uh, John that if we say we have no sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. So it's not that God uh, doesn't expect for, to find sin in the church. We all have different sin in our life. And if we don't think we do, then we've, 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 we've convinced ourselves of a lie because God's word is true there. But we're all a work in progress, and he expects Christians and the church to fight sin and walk in repentance. Like, that's his expectation for the church, so that we can grow and that he can grow us to display himself through us, right? And so the big deal is not that there's sin in the church. The big deal is there's sin in the church, and they're not repenting of the sin. They're not turning from the sin. They're knowingly walking in sin, knowing that it breaks the heart of God and knowing that it's hindering what God wants to do in and through them. And I can tell you from personal experience, there's absolutely nothing more miserable in the life of a Christian than walking in unrepentant sin. Like God will not let you do that. If you are his child, you will be miserable. You may be satisfied for a second but ultimately, when you come to church, when you open your Bible, when you think about God, that will just be right in front of you until you deal with it. And I've learned that that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing, because he's lovingly disciplining me in my life to deal with sin that's gonna lead ultimately to death and destruction for me and for those around me. And so I can tell you from experience that, that when you're walking in unrepentant sin, your life will be filled with turmoil, It'll consume your mind. It'll rob you of your joy. But the good news of the gospel is that God says if we confess our sin, like if we come out of the darkness and into the light and confess our sin, that he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what 1 John's whole point is in 1 John 1 of, hey, living in the light isn't about being sinless. Like living in the light is about being honest about our sin and bringing it to Christ as he exposes it in our life. And growth as a Christian is not about being perfect, it's about walking in the light. Because when we walk in the light and God's exposing things in us and we're dealing with those things and he's humbling us and keeping us dependent on the cross and dependent on the gospel and dependent on him, what happens is other people start to notice and other people want the same God that's at work in your life. Nobody likes a religious person except for other religious people. Like nobody likes the person that's gonna stand in front of you and act like they're perfect and they got it all together because you can't relate to that person unless you're deceived too. And so God wants us to walk in the light, but this is the way that the light is defined. So where do I wanna go today? A couple things I wanna do in my last little bit of time here to put it on the bottom shelf. This is an incredible chapter. There's so much that we could focus on here, but I think the three things that really jumped out at me were these things. The first is this, Paul's understanding 
of weakness. In verses one through 10, you see Paul just go on this, 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 taking us on this journey. And he starts somehow with a heavenly experience. And by the end of it, he's teaching us we need to be, we need to acknowledge our weakness so that the power of God can be displayed in us. It's an incredible uh, paragraph in the Bible for us to study. So think about, we're hearing from a guy who's been to heaven. The question is, why would Paul not make a big deal about this, right? I mean, I can imagine right now, one of us in this room walking out of church, and when we get out of church, Air Force One has flown into Vidae's airport, and Marine One, the helicopter, has landed at STC. And he's here to pick up somebody, right? The President of the United States is here, he's picking up somebody, and he's taking you back to D.C., you're going to the White House. You get a behind-the-scenes tour. He brings you into the war rooms. He tells you about all of the intel of everything that's going on around the world. You figure out why in the world we traded a uh, 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 drug dealer for, for uh, somebody out of jail. You figure out all the details about everything. And then you come back. He puts you back in the plane. You fly back in, land back at STC. Boom, you're on the ground. And before you get out of the, the, the helicopter, he says, hey, don't tell anybody what just happened. Nobody. You can't tell anybody. How quickly would the whole town of Idea know what happened? But Paul has gone to heaven. God has teleported him up to heaven, in the body, out of the body. He don't know, but he was in heaven and told him not to talk about it. And if any of us experienced that, we'd be writing books, and then we'd be writing a sequel saying, if you want to do the same thing, this is how you do it, right? That's just how we are. But Paul uses his heavenly experience, not to boast about himself, but as an intro to talk about his weakness. What? Like, it doesn't even make sense. It's so odd to me that Paul would rather talk about his weaknesses than his heavenly experience. Until you see his point and the magnitude that his point has on our life. Paul has figured out an incredible truth in the Christian life, and we cannot miss it. And here it is. It is in our weakness that we experience God's power and God's grace the most. Paul's literally saying, I've been to heaven, and I'm telling you, I experience more of the power and the grace of God through wrestling with my weaknesses than I experienced when I was in heaven. Like, just wrap your mind around that. What an incredible, incredible statement. It's in our pain, suffering, and difficulty that the grace of God is most present in our lives. And so Paul goes on in verse 9 and 10, and he says, therefore, I will boast in my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. Because you see, Paul had figured out a couple things, just three short things here. One, that boasting in ourselves is pointless. Isaiah 66, 2 says, this is the person to whom God will look when he comes. Those who are humble, who are contrite in spirit and who tremble at his word. John the Baptist, the greatest preacher in Jesus's book that ever lived, his motto was, I must decrease and God must increase in my life. Philippians 3, Paul himself says, the mindset of Christ was humility, service, obedience. He even says, I consider all of my worldly accolades rubbish. Greek word for just crap for the surpassing worth that I can just know Jesus and walk with Jesus. And he had figured this out, that literally the Christian life 
is not about us. It's about God. And there's freedom in him realizing that it's not about him. In the Christian faith, the way up is the way down. It's upside down from the way the world thinks. The way of the world is all about elevating yourself. It's all about proving yourself. It's all about boasting in you and what you can do. But the way of Christ is all about humility and selflessness and service. And if you want to be useful in God's kingdom, be humble, serve, live for his glory and not your own. If you desire for God to do great things in and through you, listen, he will and he wants to. But the catch is, He will never make it about you. And our greatest joy is experienced when our life is not about us, but about the glory of God because we're created by God for God. And this is what we come to know as we begin to study God's word and study the life of Christ and people who lived the way that he lived, including Paul. And the person that has this heart of humility like Paul, like Christ, is the one that God is able to do amazing things in and through. And you say, Billy, well, how do I know if I'm there? I mean, that sounds awesome, right? Like, how do I know that I'm there? Well, here's the catch. None of us are there. Like, we're all a work in progress. But here's a good question just to gauge where your heart is. How do you respond when God asks you to do something that you don't really wanna do? Like, how do you respond when God asks you to give up something that you don't really wanna give up? Or he asks you to go and talk to somebody or ask you to take a next step that you really don't want to do. Because listen, everybody wants to serve until you're treated like a servant. And so if you wanna gauge on where your heart is and humility of your heart, then ask yourself that question. It'll give you a pretty good gauge on where you are. Secondly, Paul uh, saw this and figured this out, that B, we all have a thorn in the flesh. And I think there's very good reason that Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what Paul's thorn was. I think God wants us to be able to relate and apply this principle into a number of situations, including our own, in a way uh, to understand that we all have this thorn in our flesh. And remember, it could be a pain, it may be a battle, it may be a struggle. It's something that we carry with us that Satan uses to try to disarm us, right? Uh, Maybe it's Satan uh, pointing on this part of who you are, your flesh, or this pain, or this battle, or this struggle that you have to say, you're not good enough. God would never love you. If God loved you, he wouldn't leave you this way. Just give up. It's too hard. You'll always be like this. Those statements are, are from the enemy. That's what a messenger of Satan does is he tries to disarm you and keep you from experiencing life the way Christ experienced it and the way Christ desires for you. So whether it's a physical condition, a lot of people think Paul's thorn in the flesh was malaria, headaches, epilepsy, eyesight, speech impediment, or relational pain. Some people think it was relational pain, like he lost someone close to him. Uh, Maybe it was the fact that he took part in the stoning of Stephen and that came back to to spiritually mess with him. Maybe he was abandoned uh, by someone close to him that he loved, or maybe it was a spiritual thorn, uh, which means it could have been like a specific temptation that he was susceptible to and that God wouldn't take away from him. Maybe it was constant opposition from uh, these, these super apostles trying to destroy the work that God was doing in uh, and through him. Maybe it was his past before Christ, that something in it, the, the enemies just kept bringing up to say, you'll never be used by God. God would never, you'll never be good enough. But whatever it is, it's that thing that you've asked God over and over again 
to take away from you. And whatever it is, we all have those things in our lives to reveal our weakness, our inability to live out the Christian life the way God wants us to. And just like Paul, God has a sovereign purpose in this, and it's to keep us from being conceited. It's to keep us humble. It's to keep us dependent on God's power because when we're humble and dependent on God's power, it's that place and that posture where we're the most useful for the kingdom of God. And we're the most joyful and we're the most at peace. Which leads to the final thing that Paul understood, which is C. Our weakness is a pathway, not an obstacle. I want you to listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's an incredible, famous British pastor. And he was in his biography, he talks about an experience where he felt like he was under satanic attack. He was talking about the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan and all that. And this is what he said. I want you to listen to it. It's way, he's way smarter than me and can, can break it down a little better. He says, in my opinion, God wanted to do something new to me. So he gave the devil liberty to attack me just like he did Job. It was a real satanic attack where the devil would, give me, would get me right down, but then God would lift me up. So I discovered the two actually went together. God permitted the sustained demonic assault in order to deepen my insight into the wilds of the devil and to deepen my knowledge of the only power which can counter such an adversary. God wanted to do something new in me, so he allowed this thorn to be given to me. Although we can't answer everything about the depths of suffering, we know that God's purposes in it are good. Suffering often humbles us and points us to the only power which can counter such an adversary in our life. And some say, doesn't that seem a little harsh, God allowing this thorn to be in Paul's flesh? No, friends. There is something worse than, the, than your thorn in the flesh, and that's being destroyed by pride. So God, in his grace, allows affliction to come into our lives to humble us and keep us from becoming too big-headed because it's so easy if you have the ability or success or strength to be led into conceit. There are many sins that I don't see in my life, but one thing is for sure. I am more proud than I want to admit. And so are you. So to crush our self-reliance and to crush our self-sufficiency and our conceit and our stubbornness, there is a thorn in the flesh and that, my friend, is a gift from God. Incredible. So God uses our weakness to humble us. God uses our weakness to draw us near to himself and God uses our weakness to enable us to experience his all-sufficient grace and his all-sufficient power. You see, in the Christian life, dependence is actually the objective. And if dependence is the objective of the Christian life, then weakness is actually an asset. That makes sense? And so if, if we're going for dependence on God, if that's our goal, then our weakness leads us there. It makes it an asset in the Christian life. And this is the story of the Bible. Like the quicker people in Scripture can figure out, it isn't me that God wants, I just need to be the vessel for his power to work in and through me the more God accomplishes in and through them. So I, again, I say weakness is not an obstacle. It's a pathway. And I pray that we would be a church that would walk in weakness daily so that we can experience the power of God in our lives. Secondly, we learn from this passage Paul's great love for people. 
This chapter, this whole book has been an incredible example for us on how to live difficult people. Anybody here just have difficult people in your life? Don't, don't nudge your wife or your husband. But you got difficult people. There's just some difficult people in our lives. And this book teaches us, this chapter teaches us how to love those people. I love the verse in 14 where he says, my motivation, like I want you, like that's what I want. I want to see you in right relationship with God. I want to see you as a partner in this gospel, and I want to see you as a brother or sister in Christ. There's three words that I would use to describe Paul's love for people. I want you to write them down. One is intentional. Two is relentless. And three is restorative. And all of those are characteristics of the love of Christ, but when Paul's love is intentional, what I mean is that he doesn't just talk about intentions that he has for people. Like, he acts on them. Like, his love is a choice to act on behalf of other people. When I say Paul's love is relentless, I mean that Paul had every reason in the book to give up on the Corinthians. Amen? And God had every reason in the book to give up on me and you. But he didn't. He was relentless. He pursued us, just like we sing about earlier. He didn't run from them in their issues. He ran to them in their issues. And that is a characteristic of God's love. And then thirdly, he was restorative in his love. He didn't want money. No, he wanted them. He wanted to see them fully restored with God and fully restored with others. And he would not stop until he saw that happen. He literally said, I'm expending myself. I will give everything I have and whatever it takes to see this restoration with you and God and you and me happening. And he says, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. And simply put, Paul loved difficult people like Christ loved difficult people. And when we do this, what happens is it leads these people to Christ. Because God's intended way for people to experience his love is through his people. Right, And so as God asked us to love others, even difficult people like he loved us, what happens is on earth, the tangible presence and love of God is displayed in and through us to other people. And when people experience the tangible love of God in and through us, they want more of it. And we can point them to Christ. And so my question for you is, do you love people this way? Like, do you press towards people in their chaos and in their, in their trouble and in their, in their running from God, or do you press away from them? I mean, you think about just even the Bible's definition of love. The, the Bible's definition of love is, is not a feeling. You get that, right? Like, we've, we've kind of uh, romanticized the word love where it's a feeling, but biblically, uh, the word love is, is an unconditional love. It's, it's a choice to love someone despite you not feeling like you, they, you should love them. Because listen, if somebody didn't feel like loving somebody, it would be Paul and the Corinthians. Because like, they gave him every reason to make, like, to, for him not to feel like loving them. But he did. And you listen to 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient, it's kind. It doesn't envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it doesn't easily anger, it keeps no record of wrongs, it doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. This type of love never fails. And so when we examine our lives as a Christian, 
Do we love people this way? Do I love my wife this way? Do I love my coworkers this way? Do I love my family this way? This is the type of love that God wants to display in and through us. And then thirdly, we see Paul's great concern, and I think we can learn from this too. In verses 20 and 21, Paul says, I'm afraid that when I come that I may not find you as I want you to be, that, that I may find you in the same place that I found you on the painful visit, still hung up and enslaved and stuck in the same sin that you were in. And he lists some of the sins. He says, Paul's greatest fear is that he would find the Corinthians still walking in unrepentant sin. And when he got there for the third time, that they would literally be in the same exact place that they were last time. They would be characterized by discord, by jealousy, by fits of rage, by selfish ambition, by slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder, impurity, sexual sin, debauchery. And he said it, it literally grieves him. So why does it grieve Paul to see essentially his children walking in sin? And I think the answer to that question is that one, he loves them deeply, but two, I think he knows what the sin that they're holding on to is keeping God from doing in their lives and through their lives. And Paul is even willing to say, God, get them to the end of their sin. Like He uses the statement, give them over to their sin for the destruction of their flesh so that they'll realize hanging on to that sin will only lead to destruction in their life so that they'll choose God again and they can be back where they need to be in their relationship with God. And so, as we read this about his concern, it broke Paul's heart that they would just hang on to this sin in their life because nothing kills the work of God in us and through us quicker than unrepentant sin. You see, unrepentant sin doesn't just sit idle in our lives. And you know what I mean when I say unrepentant sin? I mean, sin that God has convicted us in, like we know that something we're doing or a posture of our heart where we're living the way we want to live rather than the way God wants us to live. I won't get into details because everybody will think I'm talking to them, but like at the end of the day, like that thing that God continues to press on in our lives, it doesn't just sit idle in our lives. It consumes us. It controls us. It enslaves us, and ultimately, it will produce destruction in our lives. And here's the reality that we all face every day. There's a part of us that still loves sin. And until we get to heaven, there will always be a part of us that still loves sin. But the only reason that sin has any power in the life of a believer is because you love it and you give it that power. You don't have to. Like that's the whole idea of God renewing our mind is God doesn't want us to love sin because we recognize what sin leads. It's just a, a counterfeit of God. Everything that God promises and gives us, sin tries to promise the same but can't deliver on it. And the only reason sin has that power is because we give it that. We see it, we like it, we believe the lie that it tells us, and then we walk in it. And even though we know the Bible tells us that it's gonna lead to death and destruction, we just stay in it like quicksand. And we choose it. And what we need to understand 
is that when Christ died on the cross, not only did he pay for the penalty of sin, he rose again and gave us power now over sin. The power now rests in us, the Holy Spirit, and gives us the ability to say no to sin. But listen to me. You will not say no to sin and unrepentant sin in your life if you don't have a better yes. And so ultimately, if you track back that sin that's just controlling your life and you continue to say yes to over and over again, it tracks back to the fact that you don't believe Jesus is better. And if you don't believe Jesus is better, then you're missing the point of God's word. And you don't believe the word of God. Because we know what scripture says. John 10, 10, the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy, but Christ came to bring life, abundant life, the life we were created, joy, salvation, peace, purpose. Everything that we want out of sin is what God promises. And the secret to saying no to sin is to find the treasure that's greater than what that sin is promising. That's why self-help doesn't work. You can't do it in your own strength. The power that you need to say no to sin is the power of Christ in your life. And I don't know where every person is in this room today, but here's what I do know. We all have areas of our life that we can grow in. And probably in this message today, God's pressing on our heart in some way. And today, I pray that you would see Christ for who he is. Do you understand? You don't have to just just sit in the sin that's destroying your life or sit in the sin that's destroying your family. You can choose Christ, but you can't do it on your own. You need the power of God. And what Paul's saying is when we're in that posture of God, weakness, I need you. God, I can't do this without you. God, unless you show up, I can't do it. He says it's then that the power of God comes into your life. So I pray we would be a church that would understand that our strength is found in our weakness. Let's pray. Father, I do pray this morning, God, for each and every person in this room. God, I know there's a lot of heavy things going on. Father, I pray that the truth of the scripture that we've looked at this morning, God, that your grace and your power is present even in the most difficult areas, even in the greatest weaknesses of our life. God, that we would find that true this morning. God, would you press in and draw near to us. And God, would you give people in this room the strength to step out of idleness and complacency, to step out of pride and insecurity and jealousy and anger, whatever sin it is in their life, would you give them the power and God, give them the view of you that understands that you're better. And God, would you help us together as a church, family, to help others take that step that they need to take. So Father, that's our prayer this morning. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Thank you for being here and we'll see you back next week.